curator will see you now. Are you looking for conversations with some of the hottest names in horror today, like Eric LaRocca, Haley Piper, Clay McLeod Chapman, Laurel Hightower, Jamie Flanagan, and Allie Wilkes, along with indie horror superstars like Brianna Morgan and Joe Coach? Then you should tune in to Terrifying Tomes of Terror with your host, the curator of horror, Chance Forshee, wherever you get your podcasts. The story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were. Only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming-of-age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. It was as if the video had unzipped my skin, slunk inside my tapered flesh, and become one with me. From the creator of This Is Horror comes a new nightmare for the digital age, The Girl in the Video by Michael David Wilson. After a teacher receives a weirdly arousing video, his life descends into paranoia and obsession. More videos follow, each containing information no stranger could possibly know. But who's sending them, and what do they want? The answers may destroy everything and everyone he loves. The girl in the video is the ring meets fatal attraction for the iPhone generation. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio. If there's anything that you don't want to talk about, uh, we would love to know. So we don't talk about it. And it's not live. So if you I don't wanna... want to talk about Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> My wife loves that movie. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he rarely comes up. Yeah, I figured. Welcome to Deadhead Space. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are here to talk with the author, Lucy H. Snyder. Say hi, Lucy. Hey, everybody. Let's just uh, jump to the base question. Uh, what got you into horror? Uh, the thing that got me into horror, honestly, uh, is the reason I haven't slept well in the past three nights, which is nightmares. Yay! <laughs> um, honestly, I when I was a kid, I read science fiction and fantasy. Um, and so initially, I started trying to write science fiction and fantasy. But the stories always turned really dark and strange. And people were like, this is not science fiction. This is something different. And finally, I came to grips with what was wanting to come out of my head was uh horror and so i you know once i got to be in my 20s i sat down and started really reading horror and getting into it and uh you know kind of dedicating myself to the genre that seems to have chosen me rather than me choosing it 
in your uh, in your early twenties, what were who were some of the authors that really influenced you and helped you decide that was the genre for you? Uh, honestly, Clive Barker was one of the early ones that really captured my attention. Um, and part of that, honestly, is because a lot of his stuff does have a strong fantasy element uh, to it. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that was really influential to me that's, uh, you know, not a novel per se, but a Neil Gaiman Sandman comic series Ooh. was really, really cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one of my personal favorites is of, of his works is uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane. That's something yeah. that... Brennan actually turned me on to that's like a lot of his work, super uh, fantastical. And I don't know if either one of you have heard of this, but the first movie I saw that he wrote was a uh, mirror mask. And that was, yeah, I love that movie. Oof. That's so cool. It's super cool. It's and for those listening uh, that may not be aware, it's uh, basically like a modern day Wizard of Oz, but it's with a girl and her parents have a circus. So I'll leave it there. Brennan, um, do you want to jump into the next question, sir? Do you have something in mind or I was hoping we could, to me? Well, I was hoping that we could go uh, with Erica's questions. She wanted to be yes. here, but she had fortunately had something come up. Erica Robin, she is a. Uh, our most frequented guest host. Um, she wanted to let you know, Lucy, that she's really, uh, really sorry that she, well, I'm putting words in her mouth. I don't know what she said, but paraphrasing, she's sorry that she can't be here. I don't know how else to phrase it. So I'm just going to say that. That's sorry, fine. Erica. That <laughs> happens. Yep. So uh, Erica uh, wanted to ask uh, about one, a, a book that all three of us really, really enjoyed. And that's Halloween season. Uh it was out October 2020 from uh, Raw Dog Screaming Press, and it's a collection of Halloween-themed short stories. Uh, Erica says, selfishly, because I'm obsessed with holiday horror, I have to ask, do you have any plans for other holiday-themed collections one day? Uh, not a collection quite yet. I mean, it, do- it takes me a while to get the stories put together. I do have uh, an idea for a Christmas-themed horror novel, though. Uh, that I have not started writing, uh, but a couple of people who I talked to about it seem pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, so hopefully I'll have time to get into that before too much longer. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, writing to a holiday theme was really fun. Uh, so I would certainly be willing to do that again for a short story collection. That'd be really cool. What I, what I love about the Halloween theme, too, is that, well, I mean, it's just the, the genre we're in. You know, any any horror lover worth their salt is going to, they're not just going to break this collection out in October. You know, they're, they're going to read it all year round. I, I don't know if that's always going to be true for, you know, if you write a collection of Easter stories, that might be, you know, more April and May specific. But uh, yeah. uh, with Halloween season, I remember reading it and just having that you know this is this is such a fun like you know crunchy leaves on the ground book to be reading but at the same time i could pick this up in july and i'd be perfectly happy with that cool i love the cover um was that wasn't that lynn uh Uh, yeah oh oh my god her name slipped my mind Uh, lynn hansen yes yes it was yeah she did a really great job I, i love what she did with the cover is there, um, you know, uh, I'm listening to other podcasts and they sometimes like Larry Baron and Philip Fricassi on Philip's show, they broke down kind of the process with um, how they pick the order in a collection. Is there any, 
like I've heard a lot of authors focus on first and last story. Is there any kind of uh, I'll say ritual? That's not the right word. Any kind of practice, I guess, where uh, you uh, take when going through the order of your collections. Yeah, absolutely. I always try to look for a good flow, if possible. Um, With this collection, I kind of deliberately took kind of a candy theme in a couple of different directions. Uh, But one is sort of like, uh, you know, when you bite into a chocolate ganache where the there's this bit of dark chocolate, like right in the middle, Mm -hmm. like the stories get progressively darker to the middle um, until we get to the kind detective, which is right smack in the middle. And it's probably the grimmest story in here. And then things get weird. And then, you know, we end up with a couple of, uh, you know, pretty light, funny stories at the very end. Um, So I was looking for that kind of flow where we, you know, start out solidly, you know, in the holiday mode. Things get dark, things get weird, and then things get fun. I love that. I love this so much. Uh, Brennan, I want to ask what your... I know it's been like a, a while, but what was, do you have a favorite story if you were to suggest one to the readers from Halloween season? That is. Yeah. Um, I remember really enjoying, uh, I think it was cosmic Lucy. You'll have to forgive me. And then you'll have to correct me. I think it was cosmic cola yeah. uh, is the one uh, with uh, almost a little bit of love, Lovecraft to it. Um, and, uh, does that take place at a candy factory or am I completely fabricating it at this point? Um, it's not, it doesn't take place at a candy factory. It's basically in this little town that's very similar to Innsmouth where basically they've got two things going on. They've got fishing and then they've got this cosmic cola plant. Uh, they export all this soda, uh, that the main character hates. Um, and her, they've moved to town because her stepfather just got this, uh, high level executive job at the company. Um, And uh, then we of course discover a Lovecraftian, you know, conspiracy is afoot, uh, human sacrifice, that type thing. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it's the, um, the uh, cola company uh, rather than candy. I got cosmic cola right in the title. Why am I thinking candy? (laughs) No, I I mean, people do eat a lot of candy in the story, but you know, (laughs) yeah, I I remember just, you know, like it's dark fun. And that's, you know, exactly when I, if I'm picking up like a Halloween collection, that's what I want. Like, um, Halloween, of course, I mean, it's, it's the spooky season. It's, it's, it's the holiday for horror, but at the same time, there should be an element of fun to it. And I feel like cosmic cola definitely captures that vibe, that atmosphere. Cool. I was, I was hoping to capture that with that particular story. I don't know if anyone else has said this, but Halloween three reminded, I mean, uh, it reminded me a lot about Halloween three uh, cosmic cola, just like because okay. of, because of the town and, and the factory setting, it, it, it had similarities. Uh, it's creepy, but kind of fun at the same time. Okay. I actually haven't seen Halloween three, so I'll have to check that out. Um, yeah, it, it's just, uh, has nothing to do with Michael Myers, but it's <laughs> <laughs> just the setting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Brennan, any more questions from Erica? Uh, yeah. Let me pull that last one up. Hold on. Uh, Erica also says, have you ever considered returning to a short story to create a novella 
or novel. Specifically, when I read Visions of the Dream Witch in Halloween season, I absolutely loved the tale. And while thinking the short was perfect as is, I also craved more from these characters. So I'd actually love, you know, if you have any comments on that story, I'd love to hear them. But also, um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, um, and this ties into another question we have later on, uh, maybe revisiting an idea you have in one form uh, to take it to a different form, a longer or even a shorter form. Yeah, absolutely. I've done that. Um, a lot. All of the novels I've written to date have begun with short stories, honestly. Um, the novel that I have coming out from Nightfire uh, next uh, February, I believe it is, uh, started with uh, my story Magdala Amygdala, which came out a while back and won the Stoker Award. Mm. And um, there have been a couple of stories uh, that people have, uh, you know, said, Hey, this was really cool. Are you going to write more with this? Magdala Megalo of all the stories I had was the one where I was thinking, you know what? I have no idea what I can do with this because like the world is ending at the end of this story, you know, what else is there to write? Uh, but then um, when other people were, you know, namely the people from Nightfire were like, Hey, we would really like to see a, no a novel from this. I'm like, okay. And then I figured it out and I'm actually pretty happy with what I came up with, but yeah, definitely. I've heard other people uh, talking about visions of the dream, which um, it's definitely set in a world where there could be a lot more. And um, you know, it's just a matter of figuring out, you know, who would be interested um, and when could I do it and stuff like that. I would imagine that, you know, you're, you're, you're a, you're a Stoker winning writer. You've got, as you mentioned, a novel coming out with uh tour night fire, which is no small feat. I mean, at that point you do kind of have to select your projects. You know, I'm, I, I, I would absolutely love to work with tour night fire someday, but at the same time, because I'm not there yet, I can, you know, I, if I want to write a novella, I'm going to write that because I got time for it and uh, nobody breathing down my neck for deadlines. Um, so uh, how, how do you kind of balance that, uh, I guess, balance picking your projects? Um, for me, it's a matter of both time and energy management. Um, you know, when I was, uh, when I was starting out, it was much more of a time management problem. Um, I, at this point am writing full time, which is really cool, but also, you know, kind of scary because, you know, the, the income is, is wildly unpredictable, um, at this point. Uh, but yeah, so I have to kind of be a little bit more selective, about what I'm doing now, um, just because yeah, I do have to live on the income that I'm bringing in. Um, so if I've got, you know, one, one publisher, you know, is looking to pay me, you know, professional advance for a novel, you know, obviously I need to take that much more seriously than if there's like a fun little anthology project that comes along that I might really love to write something for, but they're only paying three cents a word. You know, I, I can't go to my agent and say, yeah, the book's late because I was writing for, you know, Vampires Don't Sparkle Part Two. She'll be <laughs> like, come over here so I can slap you. You know, <laughs> I mean, not really. She's not a violent Shots person. Shots fired, Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, you know, the implication will be there that I have to be, I guess, more responsible now that I have a career. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> that's awesome, though. Like, seriously, yeah. congrats. What is uh, besides the influx of income? What I, I, I'm not looking for, like, super detailed unless you want to uh, 
examples, but as far as like healthcare and all that stuff goes, that that's going to be running through the equation too. Like what do you do in a scenario like that? Um, honestly, I've had pretty good luck with um, ACA with the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I know that, you know, once uh, the, that's been very expensive for some people, but for what I, where I'm at and what I need, I've been able to make that work for me. Um, you know, if, uh, if my situation changes, I might have to do something else, but, um, that that's one aspect that's actually gone a lot more smoothly than I thought it was gonna. So, so yeah, Hmm. I mean, luckily I don't have kids. If I had, if I had kids, it would be a whole different ball game, you know, stuff like that. Isn't it like it? Well, I know it is for me, but I don't know how it is state by state. It's like exponentially more expensive when you have kids. Oh yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Like a like a stupid amount that I can't do the math where it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think for me in particular, it's a good deal, but for lots of other folks, it really isn't. So you know, it's just it's one of those your mileage may wildly vary type things. Oh, that's fair, uh, Brennan. I actually want to ask the other two questions, so then we can dive into uh, what we have in store. So. Sure. The first one is, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing this name correctly, but from Slava Vensky, uh, they ask, he, he, okay, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What, what does your writing process look like? Um, Well, there's a lot of panicking and a lot of crying. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, What I typically do is I think about a project for quite a while before I actually start to write. Um, my preferred method is to binge write, to, you know, have multiple unbroken hours where I can just sit down and kind of get in the groove and, and get a lot of words written all at once. Um, I know people who like, you know, can sit down at their computers before they go to work for like 15 minutes, like, and they're very productive that way. I have no idea how they do that because 15 minutes would be just long enough for me to really get my thoughts gathered. Then I would have to get up and leave. I would not be able to work that way. Um, So yeah, I'm definitely a binge writer. I don't necessarily write every day, uh, but I'm at least thinking about the narrative every day. Um, And, you know, I kind of like look for ways of, uh, you know, giving myself the stretches of time that I need to really be productive. Yeah. I, I can appreciate that. You know, I love the idea of uh, a lot of writers will write in sprints, um, 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. I saw, um, I watched an interview recently with uh, Don Winslow and uh, David Baldacci were being interviewed by Jake Tapper. And I, I did not realize that Jake Tapper, in addition to uh, working for CNN, is also uh, writes fiction. And he said that with his hectic schedule, he makes 50, he, he puts aside 15 minutes a morning to write. And I just, I can't imagine being productive in that time. I feel like, you know, I'd, I'd get started, I'd sit down, I'd put my hands on the keyboard and five minutes have passed. Um, and then I'm panicking, you know, I'm spending the next five minutes panicking that five minutes have passed. Um, and, and I think that must be, that must be a really nice kind of benefit of, being able to write full-time is being able to set aside that chunk of time specifically to get this done on your terms, I guess Mm. I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not 
taking for granted the luxury that I have to be able to set my own schedule now. Uh, you know, that part is really great. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, like I said, it's just a matter of uh, energy, energy management as well, because, you know, I've got other stuff I need to do. And sometimes I don't sleep well. And, you know, if it's a day where I didn't get any sleep or a night, a day after a night where I didn't get any sleep, you know, I might have the best intentions of the world, but my brain is just not firing all, on all cylinders. And, you know, <laughs> what I'm writing is kind of like at the end of the day, I'm like, you know what, we might as well have not tried this today. Because <laughs> uh, I, I really hate having to scrap work and start over. Um, mm -hmm. I'm much more of a measure three times cut once kind of writer. Um, I'll tend to write much more slowly than some people. Um, but I, usually knock on wood I don't have to scrap a lot I don't have to do a whole bunch of architectural rewriting later on it's mostly you know filling things out fixing you know turns of phrase things like that hmm. that's pretty cool um do you normally write at a certain time because I know like like Lansdale he says that he gets up at five four sometimes to write and then there's other you know writers that really like to do it at night. So I was wondering if you have kind of a, a certain time that you're, that you feel flow going up better than uh, other times of the day. Historically uh, things have gone a lot better uh, writing late at night. Uh, but my housemates don't really love that uh, <laughs> because it makes their scheduling, you know, kind of difficult if, you know, like they're trying to get work done and I'm like, would you please stop? banging pots in the kitchen. I'm trying to sleep, you know, that kind of thing. So they would be much happier if I were on the same schedule they were, but that doesn't always work. Uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes 3am is when the magic happens, you know, and I can't really explain why. Oh my God. It's so early. <laughs> <laughs> like I thought if you don't have to get up and go to a job the next day, it's That's not true. so bad. That's yeah. true. Cause yeah. I'm thinking like I get up at five before my like it's out before I got to go to work. So yeah, it's that's a really good point, Brennan. Um, oh man. Okay, so the second name. Apologies again. Arasiba Campichi. Yeah. Uh, and I see a picture. So he asks, "How do you?" Or I'm assuming. So uh, he asks, "How do you decide if an idea will become a poem, short story, or a book?" He followed that up with the one more question. What would it take for you to change from one to another midway through writing if this happens at all? Uh, so uh, that's the first question again, because that was a mouthful. How do you decide if an idea will become a poem, short story or a book? Well, a lot of times I'm writing uh to fulfill an invitation. You know, I've been invited to write for an anthology. I've invite, been invited to write, uh, to submit a poem. You know, there's a specific type of work that I need to submit. Um, so I have learned over the years, um, and I can't necessarily articulate how this works, but I've learned kind of, in, kind of been able to internalize what will be a good story idea versus a novel idea versus a poem idea. Mm. Um, I've learned to pretty well judge, um, how long a particular narrative is going to take to spin out. Um, Cosmic Cola actually surprised me. I originally had planned for that to be like 6,000 words long and it actually came out close to 10, but luckily the editor was not upset that I wildly blew past <laughs> the, uh, 
the the requested word count because he'd had somebody kind of drop out at the last minute. So he had the space for it. And so that worked out really well. But I try not to do that. I try to, you know, hit my target within, you know, 10% either direction. Um, and people are usually happy with that. Um, this is a learnable skill. I have no idea how to teach somebody how to do it. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with reading a lot of work in the links that you're trying to write, because it kind of imprints those structures into your brain and those types of pacings into your brain. And I think that helps a great deal. Um, so to answer his question, part of it is, uh, you know, my invitations dictate, uh, what it is that I'm writing and how long it is. Um, sometimes if I'm just writing on spec, I might play around with something. I've certainly started poems that weren't going right. Like I couldn't get, uh, I, I couldn't get the rhythm right. I couldn't get the line lengths to work out properly. It just wasn't working as a poem. I tend to write narrative poems. Mm. And so sometimes I've taken one of those poems that isn't quite going the way I think it ought to. And I take it out of stanzas and see if it works as a flash piece. And nine times out of 10, I can make it into a, a viable flash piece if I can't make it work as a poem. And oh, so wow. there are a couple of pieces that I do have a poem version and I have a flash fiction version. Um, and like I said earlier, I've taken some short stories and expanded them into novels um, so I kind of go back and forth with things. Some novels I've gone through and looked for self-contained sections that I could then turn into a short story. So it does go back and forth. That's really cool. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You know what? That maybe it's just my weird brain thinking this, but like, I, again, I was listening to Philip Fricasse's podcast and he had Ellen Detlow uh, on and, and she was talking about how, uh, and I've heard this from other from authors before that you shouldn't throw away any of your work because you can cannibalize those stories, take the best parts and, and just put it to what it applies to. So that, that kind of, that's how I took what you said in that very last part. Um, yeah. yeah. So with me, just to piggyback off of Lucy, um, Sometimes I have an idea and I go, that probably be a short story. And then it blows up. Does that happen to, does that happen to you, Brennan? I mean, occasionally I, I, I feel like I usually try to um, know what I'm going to write before I start writing it. And it either works or it doesn't. And it goes in like, the, the death folder. Um, but it's uh, honestly, it's, I know a lot of people are pretty good about repurposing and, um, you know, looking at a story and saying, Oh, I thought this is going to be 5,000 words, but it's 20. Um, and, and I just, I don't find that happens, but I, I have to say, I really appreciate Lucy kind of taking a swing at how to understand uh, we, we've had this conversation a fair few times in 150 episodes, and the most common answer does seem to be, I don't know how I know it's going to be the length it's going to be. I just do. I'm so sorry. I can't provide a better answer. Um, and I, I, I really think that it boils down to the longer you the, the longer you write, the more you kind of practice the skill. And also, Lucy, you, you said reading is certainly a big helper. Um, it just becomes kind of a, a natural innate skill 
But again, I do appreciate you taking a swing at um, here's why I think it uh, here's why I think that, you know, writers who are seasoned can can pull it off. It's certainly a matter of practice. Uh, but the reason I think it's also a matter of reading is when I was a very young writer, you know, uh, there were a lot more opportunities to write short stories than obviously, you know, novels. So I was starting to write short stories and they were always blowing up on me and getting long and things like that. But the thing was, I was only reading novels. I wasn't reading a lot of short fiction outside of whatever got assigned in English classes. And I realized, oh, yeah, maybe if I want to write these, I should really be reading these. And so once I started regularly reading short fiction, things got a lot better. I mean, it really did help me. Um, but of course, at the same time, in tandem with that, I was getting more practice writing. Uh, so, you know, I think they both matter a lot, both the practice and the reading. But, you know, I think if if somebody just keeps trying, they'll eventually get there. They'll, they'll eventually figure it out on their own. Now, just I'm, I'm going to throw this out there. But if there's somebody listening who because I think that's great advice, like wh whatever you're trying to improve at, you, you need to read that. I just, you know, I, I've talked ad nauseum on this, on this show about uh, the importance of, of, of reading in order to learn how to write. I just don't think it can be understated. Um, if there's somebody who likes that piece of advice and uh, wants to learn how to uh, write better short fiction. Uh, besides yourself, who do you think are some modern writers that they should check out that really have a good hold on that uh, style? Question. Oh gosh, you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a good question. There are so many people who are really good short story writers. I mean, you know, uh, there's. Only name the people you like. I'm, oh, just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put me on the spot, man. Uh, what I would, what I would advise people to do, because I've had very good luck with this, um, is go look at the awards long list for every year. You know, there's the Shirley Jackson Awards, there's the World mm -hmm. Fantasy Awards, there's the Bram Stoker Awards. Look at the short stories and novellas that end up on their long list, the things that have been nominated, and start reading those. Um, there there's a lot of really good stuff that's freely available on the web. Like uh, if you read the stories at nightmare magazine, those are going to be top drawer um, apex magazine. That's mm -hmm. another good place to find stuff. Uh, you know uh, there, there are a bunch of and tour.com has got a lot of good stuff as well. It'll be, you know, kind of across the board genre wise, but, um, but yeah uh, in terms of, in terms of individual people, I mean, there's like Ursula Vernon, uh, Seanan McGuire is really great. Um, she has uh, co-written a series of Lovecraftian space operas that I love to death. It's in her Bujum verse. Um, since we were talking about Lovecraft earlier, like if, if you enjoy that and want to see it set in outer space, that would be, you know, totally somebody's jam. Um we were talking about Neil Gaiman. I mean, he's a, he's a brilliant short story writer. Um, there's just a whole bunch of people out there. There's a lot of people who are writing really good stuff right now. Let's put Brennan on the spot. Who would you pick? <laughs> uh, 
I'll go there in a minute, but actually, I really, I really like how you started with markets as opposed to just in, you know, you you named some individuals, so technically you didn't dodge the question, but um, I and I, I would add like if you are learning to write short stories and you're you're submitting them and you keep getting rejected, uh, read from that market, you know, Absolutely. both to, yeah, like you know, you mentioned nightmare, uh, they they take the top of the line, so you know, read read their stuff uh, in order to both understand what, you know, those editors consider top of the line, but also to understand uh, to, to a degree, you know, what, how you might need to approach your storytelling different uh, in, in order to kind of crack that market. Uh, oh, short stories. Um, I was only kidding, Brian. I was just trying oh, to be a smart ass. Um, <laughs> good. Cause I don't want to answer. <laughs> I wouldn't want to answer that either. There's so many. And then when you're asked questions, your mind just goes blank. Oh, it absolutely does. So his second question was, what would it take for you to change from one to another midway through uh, being they being a poem or short story book uh, through writing? If this happens at all. Um, like I said, sometimes if I'm writing poetry um, and Typically, if I'm writing poetry, it's because I wanted to rather than because somebody invited me to. I do get invited uh, to write poetry for various projects, but it happens much less often than with uh, short fiction. Uh, so, like, I'll be writing a poem, like, say, for my Patreon or something, and that can be anything that I want it to be, right? Uh, but if I'm working with it and it's just not coming together, like I said, you know, I'll sometimes take it out of stanzas and see if it works as a flash piece or if it works as the start of a flash piece. Um, you know, a poem can often get by on simply being evocative and thought-provoking, whereas, you know, flash piece really does need to have, you know, a plot to it, some kind of narrative, some kind of twist at least. Um, so sometimes I'll need to add a bit more. Um, but, uh, you know, if I've been invited to write a thing for a particular project and the editor is expecting it, it, it kind of needs to be that, you know, it needs to stay that. Sometimes I will abandon something that I realize is get, is going to get out of control and not even going to come close to the word counts they requested, uh, but I'll keep it. I won't like just delete it, but then I'll move on to something else. I've had to do that a couple of times. Interesting. Um, Brennan, take us away with any direction you want, and then I'll uh, jump back. Sure. So, Lucy, you mentioned earlier that uh, you have a novel coming out from Tor next February Monster. Yeah. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you, it sounded like they commissioned it. Well, I had run a couple of ideas past both my agent uh first my agent and uh, they were like, we like these ideas. And then once I worked up those ideas, she um, pitched them to, uh, to my editor at Tor. And she was like, Ooh, I really like this one. And I, you know, part of me was going, Oh, son of a bitch. Cause this was the one where, you know, again, I was not super duper clear on how I was going to expand that world, but everybody had been asking for it. Right. Um, and so I thought, okay, I got to pull up my socks and figure this one out. And I'm pretty happy with how it's come out. Um, like initially, it was kind of funny. Initially, I was like, oh, how am I ever going to get this even to 60,000 words? And then I 
in my most recent pass, I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to keep it under 80? You know, <laughs> once it, once it, it started taking off, it really took off. So. That's cool. So can you give us a kind of a base synopsis on what people can expect? Okay. If you've read uh, Magdala Amygdala, the, um, the book is broken into three parts. Um, the first part um, deals with Aaron, who is the protagonist of Magdala Magdala. We find out a whole bunch more about where she, you know, her, her life before um, the infection. Uh, we learn more about her relationship with Betty and where that came from. Um, the second part uh, deals with a character named Savannah. Um, and that actually is based on a short story that was in uh, the Miscreations anthology that came out a few years back. Mm -hmm. I'd written it kind of in the same world. And that part is um, a significant expansion of that character's story. And then part three is about a woman named Mareva, and it kind of uh, binds the first two stories, to, uh, the first two narratives together. And then we kind of find out what happens after Aaron's transformation and a whole bunch of other things. That's excellent. And what an, what an exciting press to be working with, you know, they, I believe they started putting out books under the Nightfire label uh, just mid to late last year. Yeah. It's uh, been pretty recent. Yeah. And they're, they're putting out some very, I mean, every, every title they drop from Katrina Ward is just, it's excellent. Um, uh, Gretchen Felker Martin's Manhunt, you know, got a lot of attention. It's just, oh, it, yeah. it's a very exciting press to be work, uh, working oh, yeah. with. So, I mean, big, big congratulations to you, you for landing that. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens. Um, I suspect I'm not going to be like lambasted in the British press like uh, Gretchen was. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> that whole thing was crazy, but you yeah. know, the book has been selling like mad. So, you know, good for her. Um, a Harry Potter like, lady had it coming. <laughs> 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 she only had herself to blame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've got cell block tango echoing through my mind right now. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, I've really been happy working with uh, Tor Nightfire. I've worked in various capacities with other very large publishers, and uh, they have by far been the most engaged one. Um, you know, uh, working with Rand, I worked with Random House for my first three novels, and um, I mean, they were fine, they were professional, but at no point was I not aware that I was a tiny cog in a vast publishing machine. <laughs> um, and even now, like if I need to get a hold of somebody, I mean, good luck with that. Okay. Um, you know, all the, the communications I get from them are extremely anonymous. Nobody's name is attached to anything. I don't know who I'm talking to. It, it's kind of frustrating. Uh, That's but, weird. But That's like, weird. yeah, yeah. It, you know, uh, you, you would hope things would be different. Um uh, mm. But with Tor Nightfire, like I have a team, I know who's on my team. They talk to me and stuff. It's cool. <laughs> so I, I'm very interested in in that the fact that this this big major league press, um, you know, is is garnering a reputation for really almost the personal touch. 
So I wonder if you can you tell us like a little bit about how that team operates? Um, to a certain extent, I can't speak to that a whole lot because I'm still pretty early on in the production process. Uh, you know, right now they've uh, started promoting the book, even though like the finalized copy hasn't gotten, uh, you know, into uh, production yet. We are about to enter the copy editing phase. Um, and uh, there are some things I wanted to add to the book and all that. So, you know, we're not even at a point where, um, you know, the book is finished, finished. You know, I don't quite know how long it's going to be, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and one thing, this is just an aside, I was over on Goodreads and I noticed somebody had rated the book four stars and I'm like, are you in my brain? Like, how do you know what the book is? I don't even know what the book is yet. Come on. <laughs> Welcome to Tor Nightfire, where you get three before the book or anybody but you has read it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, so anyway, um, I've gotten even at this point, I've gotten uh, communications from uh, some people in their promotions side of things. Uh, they've been like sending me graphics for one thing and another for social media. Um, I've uh, gotten information about one thing or another that's been coming up. They've been trying to loop me in on stuff so that at least I know what's going to be happening when that type of thing. Um, so they do like to get a nice long lead time on things, um, which is very, very different than working with a small press because, you know, with a small press, it's like you can get a book to them, you know, four months before the pub date and it's fine. Uh, You know, and review copies basically go out pretty adjacent to when the book is being published. Mm -hmm. But here it's like, they want to get review copies into reviewers hands like six months before the book comes out at least. So, uh, so, you know, it's a very different kind of deal. Hmm. Sorry to harp on this, but uh, I've talked about in previous episodes, how, horror fans, readers, whatever, our writers, we like to be, uh, we want to be killed and mutilated. And that just goes to show you, <laughs> if you're not a horror fan, you're probably going to take offense to it. I, I do think that's funny. And I have a kind of a smart ass question. Is that considered fan fiction in the Harry Potter world? <laughs> you know, like, you know, like in the Dark Tower series, how Stephen King's in his own series. Yeah, well, it'd be huh, fitting. If, it'd be fitting if Gretchen was like the creator of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am very curious to hear about. Uh, I don't know. I'm really bad with pronouncing things tonight. Is it Cheryl Mad? Your anthology that you co-edited. Oh, Carol Mad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know your process with co-editing an anthology with someone. Um, that, that worked out really well. Um, Michael Bailey, I've known him for quite a while. I'd known him before, you know, uh, we ended up co-editing together. I'd written some stories for him when he was editing anthologies and, you know, he put out the call saying, Hey, I'm putting together this anthology where the whole theme is collaboration. So I want to collaborate with another editor. Um, and so I threw my hat in the ring and he was like, yeah, this will work out. So, um, we had, it was sort of a combination of invitations uh, and, uh, you know, people that um, Michael and I specifically said, Hey, why don't y'all team up and write us a short story? And then we also had an open call for submissions. Um, And once the dust had settled on that, uh, we kind of looked at what we had and, you know, we made a few more invitations 
because, uh, you know, we wanted to shape the book in a certain direction and add a little bit more balance and things like that. So we ended up uh, inviting people to write and uh, the vast majority of them were able to do so, um, you know, after we'd already gone through um, the slush pile. The interesting thing about the slush pile was, and nobody who's actually edited an anthology will be surprised by this, like 53% of what was submitted to us was an auto-reject because it was written by one person. <laughs> like, you know, the whole, you know, the central requirement, you know, right up front in our guidelines was it had to be co-written by at least two people. It could right. be more than two, but right. it couldn't just be one. And I figured, you know, we would have the problem of people pretending that they had co-written a story with like their cat or something or their dog, <laughs> um, you know, but nobody did that. People just sent us solo written stories. And it was like, did, did you even look at the guidelines? <laughs> and the answer um, is no, they did not. <laughs> and, and yeah, no, they did not. Uh, so that kind of made our jobs easier. We were just like, okay, well, we can't use this one. It, it doesn't fit you know, the guidelines. So those would just get, you know, form rejections. And of the ones that came after that, I mean, we gave stories a fair shot and read, but like, you could honestly tell from the first page, whether or not it was something that was going to be usable. Um, like a lot of people just had seemingly not even heard of standard manuscript format. Um, and the people who had not heard of that had also not heard of proofreading and a bunch of other things. So, um, you know, uh, it was um, the, the slush pile was actually easier to manage than I suspected it might be, um, because previously I had worked on um, a small webzine years back. And um, I knew that the moment you offer money for anything, you just get inundated with submissions. But um, we really kind of didn't. I think part of it was that we only had um, the doors open for a very limited period of time. How long? And, oh, oh, I can't even remember at this point, but it was like just like a month or two or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, people we'd invited, we worked with them, you know, if they couldn't get anything to us, like right then, we would, you know, give them whatever time they needed uh, within reason. But mm -hmm. yeah, so uh it was just a lot of people just weeded themselves out of the running like really fast. And then we only really had to seriously consider about 25% of what we got. And there were only a couple of things that I was kind of like, gosh, this really could have been a good story if only, you know, and, and we did send a little feedback to folks, uh, but you never know how that's going to be received. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just uh, took on my first editorial debut with an anthology and, and yeah, I can, uh, to, wild west based in the old west and uh it, it puzzled me how many people wrote it about things that weren't in the west or in the future <laughs> it's just uh it's like uh oh, that's the that's the whole main theme there we're just going off base <laughs> um yeah. i was curious because i kind of developed I, I asked a few editors that i looked up to like i asked I asked Alan Datlow and uh, Lansdale what they what their process was like. I'm like, do I read a paragraph, a page? If I don't like it, I know that you can tell really quick. Um, they pretty much, you know, a paragraph to a page is pretty good. You know, you can tell pretty much the whole story within that range, and and it worked. I was wondering what your if you did just the one page, or or in some cases if you pushed through and it paid off, or. Or if you kind of just stuck to one thing. 
Um, usually you can tell, usually like 90% of the time you can tell within one page. Occasionally I could tell within one paragraph, Hmm. um, you know, but I would give it a page just to make sure. Um, but nothing that was going to require a lot of remedial developmental editing Hmm. was going to make the cut anyway. So, um, ultimately the folks that, you know, had the, this was the beginnings of a really good story, but it needs more work. You know, they got, uh, they got some level of feedback from Michael. Um, he mostly handled that, but, um, but yeah, it's like, you can tell within the first page, if somebody really knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, the, the like very professional stories, you know, immediately pop out at you. And of course I would continue reading those until I hit a problem. Uh, and then I would read past the problem and, you know, kind of see where it went, but but yeah, uh, a first page, I usually give it more than a first paragraph unless it's just, you know, awful, you know, like you're reading something and you're like, okay, this is not going to work, you know. I totally get it. Yeah, Brennan, go ahead, bud. Um, first off, Lucy, I just wanted to congratulate you. Um, your book, Exposed Nerves, uh, just got nominated for a 2022 oh, yes. Elgin Award, correct? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it had also been nominated for Stoker previous to that. Oh, excellent. I missed that. I missed that. Um, So I want to talk just a little bit about poetry. It's something that we have not really covered a lot on this show. Uh, And and I'm wondering, what is your approach to writing poetry versus straight prose? I was very interested to hear um, uh, you talking about taking a poem and restructuring it to become flash fiction, but how how different is is poetry from prose for you? Um, poetry is is pretty different from like regular short stories, but I would say that poems and flash fiction have a whole lot in common. Um, I would strongly advise anybody who wants to write flash fiction um, to study poetry, read poetry, try your hand at poetry, even if you never feel like your poetry is really that good or something that you can get published, it will certainly improve your uh, fiction. So it's sort of like cross training, you know, uh, football players taking ballet and that type of thing. Mm. Um, So um, yeah, uh, poetry is cool to me in that I get into a zone when I'm writing it that I don't get into when I'm just writing prose. Um, like it, it, it fits into interesting places in my brain. And that's why I really enjoy both reading it and writing it. Um, it does something for me that, that fiction does not, um, you know, obviously it's not a completely different thing. We're all using the same words and things like that, but, uh, but writing poetry really teaches you how to economically describe things, how to create eyeball kicks, you know, those, those really vivid, interesting turns of phrase and descriptions and things like that. Um, it teaches you rhythm, um, how language flows together. Uh, it teaches you how you can layer in meanings, how, you know, uh, thinking about how a word could mean more than one thing, depending mm. on the context in which you read it. Um, so it, it's just, I think it does really cool things for a writer's brain. Um, so I encourage everybody to at least try it. It might not be your thing, but, um, I think you'll, you'll get a lot out of it. I also heard, uh, someone, I forget who, but they mentioned that reading poetry will teach you. Oh, I think it was Victor Laval. Um, I feel like it was him that said this. He said that, uh, 
reading poetry, it'll teach you where to have page breaks, where to separate one thought from another. And I never thought oh, yeah. of that before. Absolutely. Hmm. Brennan, uh, you want to lead the way with the, uh, the next question? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Lucy, what are you currently reading or have read recently that you'd like to uh, give a shout out to? Uh, we already talked about it a little while ago, but um, I read Manhunt a while back and kind of hmm. reread it. That was really cool. Um, I read uh, T. Kingfisher's What Moves the Dead fairly recently. That isn't out yet, um, but that is a neat little uh, novella. It's a um, reimagining of The Fall of the House of Usher, um, and it's just it's just very cool. Um, Let's see. I have downloaded a whole bunch of books recently. My TBR pile is all on my iPad, which I don't have in front of me, but it was just sort of like, oh, there's a bunch of cool stuff on sale. Let me grab that. <laughs> yeah, so many books that, uh, man, how, how would any of us read even half of them in yeah. a lifetime? But that's kind of the beautiful it's not thing. happening. <laughs> no. Brenda, what are you currently reading? Um. Speaking of of the Stokers, I have had this lovely signed edition of My Heart is a Chainsaw sitting nice. on my shelf for a long time, and I finally have picked it up, and I'm about a quarter of the way through it. Um, That's I, in my iPad I, TBR. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever admitted this, but I I wanted to uh, the the only good Indians. I wanted to like that book so bad, and it just did not work for me. I I found. Uh, I found it hard. Like the the prose was beautiful, and you, like you could step back and just see what a masterpiece it was. You know, just how the 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 mastery that you know Stephen Graham Jones has in that. But it just it it just didn't click for me. And this one is different. Um, I'm really really enjoying it. The the main character uh, is just a lot of fun, like very quirky, and it's it's very very engaging. Um, and, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of doling it out a couple chapters at a time, making it last. And uh, it, it's a good one. The other one, you know, I, Pat jokingly asked me to name some short story writers earlier. And I blanked, despite the fact that I had this sitting right in front of me with some really great short story writers in it. Um, <laughs> so this is uh, Orphans of Bliss. Uh, Mark Matthews edited it. Uh, he's done two more. Uh, this is uh, Addiction Horror. Uh, he did Garden of Fiends, I think was the first one, and Lullabies for Suffering came out uh, maybe two years ago, and it was so brilliant. You know, he had, uh, I think, six novellas in it, and they were all so fantastic. And uh, this one has uh, Josh Mallerman has a great story in there. Um, Kathy Koja is in there. John F.D. Taff is absolutely somebody who I would uh, put up there if I was forced to name uh, somebody who really knows what they're doing with short stories. John Taff is, is absolutely in that tier. Uh, and Samantha Koyesnik has a really wonderful one in here. Um, I, I love the anthologies he puts out and uh, this one is no different. Pat, I how think about you? stuff is really good. I read her last short story collection. I think it was, maybe she's had another one out since, but I, it really struck me as great. And of course I don't remember the title, but yeah. <laughs> I can picture the cover, but I know I can't yeah. help you on the title, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I'm about 60% through uh, Ellen Labot. She's a newer writer. She has a series, uh, it's a vampire series set in uh, Europe during World War II. But 
it's really a story that World War II is in the background. And there's key players from in the second one. Uh, how do I word this? There's key players to the Nazi party in this. And it's really interesting what she does. This one's called the Sanguinarian. And I'm probably butchering this name, too. I don't speak German, but uh, Schwarzwald. And it's uh, it takes it picks up where the first one left off and it's, you know, it's just this girl trying to get revenge on this pretty much an evil piece of shit vampire. And it's uh man, it's, I'm having a rough time kind of elevator pitch it, but it, it it's bloody in the parts where it should be. It's re- it covers historical aspects really well and it flows very smoothly. There we go. Kind of nailed it, I guess. Um, <laughs> then uh, I'm drawing a blank on the other ones. Man, I'm sorry, Lucy. You're just it's all right. With, you're dealing with a mush brain today. Um, well, that's every night, right, Brennan? <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I said it for you. So, Lucy, where can people follow you? Beg pardon? Wait, uh, sorry about that. Talked quickly. I said, where can people follow you? Uh, let's see. I'm on Twitter. Uh, just look for Lucy A. Snyder. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I am on, um, Instagram, but really badly. Um, like I don't post there very often. Uh, same thing with Tumblr, but you know, if you want to interact with me, mostly it's going to be Twitter or Facebook. Excellent. Um, and that is S N Y D E R for those wondering. Um, I was wondering if you have any final thoughts. Um, not really. Just thanks for having me on. This was great. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, long time coming. So I appreciate your patience. And uh, my final thoughts are thank you for giving us your time. And uh, Brennan, off to you, sir. Yep. Echoed. Uh, thank you for your time. And uh, people should be on the lookout for Sister Maiden Monster out next February from Tor, unless yep. you are an avid reviewer and you could probably get that in like August and write up a brilliant review. Uh, give it four stars or more and actually have but read wait until it's actually out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, I should have mentioned this in the beginning, uh, slipped my mind, but uh, this is the 150th episode. Woo-hoo! Thanks for being a part of this, Lucy. That's pretty well, awesome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Listeners, next episode is 151 with that fellow we were just talking about, Mark Matthews. He's a writer. He's an anthologist. He's a whole lot more. Uh, We'll find out all about him uh, next episode, next week. So, listeners, as always, thank you for picking us. Lucy and Brennan, thank you for being a part of this one. Thank you very much.